0: Welcome to the Ludogogi podcast, your monthly games-based learning earworm. I'm Antonis.
1: And I'm Sarah. And today we welcome Evan Raskob as our guest on the Ludogogi podcast. Evan is an educator, artist and games designer. A senior lecturer and course leader at the UAL Creative Computing Institute, he is tasked with guiding students through what can only be described as very interesting times in the digital world. As the creator of the Peak game, he has been known to Ludogogi for some time, contributing articles and even a short story or two about the future, a topic which informs his game's design too. Peak, spelt P-E-E-K as in look or glimpse, is a game about possible futures, which unfolds as a kind of playable novel and comes in two editions, one of which looks at the more immediate future, and then Peak 2, a more speculative look at a more distant future time. It has not only been enthusiastically received by players for many years, but it featured in the book Beyond Speculative Design and was exhibited as part of the V&A Museum's Digital Weekend in 2018. Welcome, Evan. The first question we like to ask all our guests is for an interesting but little known fact about themselves. So what is it that people will be surprised to hear about
2: Evan Raskob? Well, thanks, Sarah. I think one interesting fact is when I was uh, starting out college, I worked on the assembly line building minivans for General Motors. So I actually worked in an auto assembly plant, proper um, blue-collar job back in the States.
0: Well, that is indeed interesting.
2: <laughs> Has that informed in any
0: way, shape, or form your creativity process? Or in other words,
2: how do you come up with uh, ideas for your games like Peak? Uh well, I mean, it's interesting you mentioned the assembly line, because I hadn't really thought about that in a while. But there was a sign above the assembly line that said, if you have an idea, uh, then tell management and we'll integrate it. And they were super proud of that. I know in the States, auto working is quite unionized, or at least it was back then. I'm not entirely sure that Tesla is these days, given given Elon Musk's ideas. Um, but uh, there was there was always a sense that everyone can contribute and that the people who know what they're doing the most are the people who should be contributing towards it. And A, I really enjoyed that. And I really enjoyed the way that people would actually think about how they wanted to change their lives and their workplaces. Um, but that does really fit into my ideas of games and the whole thing that I'm trying to accomplish with the games, which is to get people to take some kind of ownership and agency over their lives and to kind of sw- swap around media so... You know, games can be entertaining, but also they can be meaningful and they can lead to some sort of change, you know, some sort of back and forth. Should we talk more about maybe some of the processes I use to get uh, ideas? I mean, because uh, I, I think a lot of what I, what I do comes from my teaching. So uh, a lot of teaching that we do, I, I like to add in ideas of storytelling and speculative design. Um, in fact, I'm planning a whole new computer science degree, and you don't usually think of computer science as something that has to do with games I mean, we think of computer games as games, but that's really like a whole other thing that's applied programming. That's not the whole big capital C, capital S computer science. Um, But I really like the idea, which I take from Ursula Le Guin, And I think many people take this from her now. So you'll probably know what I'm about to say. I feel a bit seen with this. (laughs) But it's um, the idea of uh, the carrier bag, uh, uh, the carrier bag theory of fiction that she has that, you know, fiction and books are really like some sort of bag that you put ideas inside and that the carrier bag is like the original ancient technology that changed human beings forever because it gave us ways to carry around and put things in it. And I mean, if you're talking about education, that's... Kind of what I think education and even computers and technology are in many ways is, you know, they're not weapons. They're they're just new shaped baskets or bags or toolboxes to put things in. So that's the way I look at my games. I think, what's what's this game? What kind of bag is it? What does it look like? You know, I'll even do mood boards with different bags on them. And what tools do I put inside it?
0: Yeah, that makes perfect sense. I'm really happy that you mentioned Rosella Le <laughs> I'm a big fan. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I think we all are. So... They're sort of getting into the nitty gritty of games. So one of the one of the ways in which people often like to discuss games now and now there's, there's, there is sort of an academic field around uh, discussing games. Is sort of thinking about them in a quite a mechanical way. Um, so do you have a f- a favorite game mechanic? And, and if so, have you used it in your games? And and how did it work out?
2: Yeah, I think I've got one really simple game mechanic that I keep coming back to. All right. On the face of it, it's simple, but the application of it and, you know, getting it to actually fit in the game and work properly are what's really hard, right? Um, So the idea is, I don't know, I've been calling it like X plus Y equals Z. And uh, I was just actually reading today on this one, and I realized I, I must have absorbed this from my childhood. Because it's one of those things that kids do where they start with one concept, some random concept, and then they add another one, and then they make something out of it. So the, the most purest form and the most fun I think I've seen of this is when you have to pitch a movie. It's like that kind of game where you pitch a movie and you say, this movie is like X. And then it's like Y, but it's going to be something different. So it's like, um, you know, it's going to be Arnold Schwarzenegger is going to be in it, but it's going to be like Titanic. And it's going to be and then you have to come up with an idea. So it's like an action adventure movie on a sinking ship back in the 1920s. <laughs> Right, you know. It's like Pride and Prejudice with Zombies. Yeah, exactly. They made that yeah, that's, one. <laughs> that's much better example, actually. <laughs> <laughs> I'd like to see that, to be have, honest. Have you not
1: seen that? It's a,
2: that's a real thing. It wasn't something you just made up.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's an actual film called Pride and Prejudice with Zombies, yeah.
2: And a book too, I think, right? I th- I'm pretty sure it's a book.
0: Okay, mm. I need to watch that. <laughs> <laughs> you learn something new every day.
2: Yeah, I mean, if you want to really go down that rabbit hole, there's like, you go on Amazon, there's like... Anything you can think of, like some weird storytelling thing and something else. What was it? There was one about like dinosaurs and, um, I forget, dinosaurs and like religious figures or something, you know, being friends. And that was... Yeah, that is, that is yeah, that, that's the Spanish one with uh, Jesus basically yeah. fighting uh, <laughs> the dinosaurs.
0: <laughs> <laughs> it's super fun. <laughs> Like they beat him with a B movie. Oh, there is of course Abraham Lincoln Vampire Hunter. <laughs> oh
2: yeah, yeah. There you go. Yeah,
1: mm-hmm. yeah. There's a lot of that going on with the way people are uh, reacting to Mid Journey. I think now isn't there? Sort of oh, people yeah. are making uh, sort of like synthesizing these ideas and making these mashups in sort of imagery. Um, and, and that's what I thought you were talking yeah. about when you were talking about religious figures and dinosaurs, um, because I think they did <laughs> one where cars were dinosaurs um, quite recently. I saw. <laughs>
2: oh I could see that well that was Transformers right I mean that was basically yeah, the that, second part or was it
0: Yeah, that, yeah, that yeah. was definitely transform- oh my god yeah back to the 80s and the early 90s well, there yeah, was also yeah. Cadillacs and dinosaurs I seem to remember oh, that yeah
2: yeah yeah <laughs> Cadillacs and dinosaurs yeah I mean this is like it, it's a tried and true concept right but like yeah. you could see how it depends on execution because like Pride and Prejudice with zombies is, is, is a great example because that could be horrible but well-executed, it's actually quite amazing and it can be a whole franchise. Um, so it really comes down to the craft of it. And, uh, I mean, there's a bunch of games that have done this, apparently. Um, do you know Dixit? You, ever, you know that classic game, the storytelling game? <laughs> it's one game, of my now? most favourite ones, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yes, no Dixit, there's Dixit. Well. And what's the other one? I was just looking it up today. Something like Green Apple or something like that. Um, Green Apples, yeah. I just looked this up today and it, I... I I think I sort of remembered it from my childhood, but it was the same thing. You get like, you have cards that are nouns and then there's some sort of adjective and then you have to make up a story around it or like, ma- you have to say which ones best fit that adjective. And then the, who is it? The card, the card master, whoever the person is, who's dealing out the game decides who's, what's the best one.
0: Yeah. Th- yeah. 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 That's, that, that's a, that's a common kind of mechanic. It's <laughs> pretty much the same, like the Cards Against Humanity. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. But you can exactly. also make uh, many creative types of uh, interpretative, storytelling, basic mechanic. Like y- you use story cubes to come up with your own rules. Mm-hmm. and then Story
2: cubes, yeah. save the cat. <laughs> yeah. And yes, like yeah, yeah. So many, many of those. Yeah.
1: So how, do, how, does this, how does this mechanic manifest itself in your games, Evan? In Peak,
2: for example. Well, I, one of the things I took to it, so as an educator and someone who deals with pedagogy, you know, I, I'm used to doing assessment and I realized a lot of these games kind of fall down on the assessment side of things. And, you know, we all hate assessment because it's where you get the grade and we don't like to get grades and get deflated. <laughs> hopefully, hopefully grades are a bit helpful, but usually, you know, they can be not so helpful to us sometimes in terms of feelings. Um, but, uh, you know, the idea of bringing criticality to it, is something that I think is interesting and not just saying like, oh, it's dealer's choice to decide whether or not this is a good thing or not, but to examine as a group, what is the criteria for what's good and bad? You know, why do we like things? Why do we dislike things? And then try and improve and iterate on it. So I've really been trying to get criticism into games as a mechanic for a while. And Peak was an interesting one It's the kind of game where, like, I tried to explain it in videos, and I think I just didn't really get across very well. People always think it's more complicated than it is. Like, it's super easy. You tell a story, and then people decide if it's plausible, uh, and then and then, uh, what's the bit? And creative. That's it. That was your two criteria. I went down from four to two criteria in playtesting. So all you have to say is, could it maybe happen, and is it creative? And um, hopefully the creativity balances out the idea that it may not be so plausible. So if you have Pride and Prejudice and Zombies, you could say like, well, you know, maybe it's not the most plausible thing, but it's super freaking creative. So,
0: yay. It sounds sounds as easy as, it's, as it sounds challenging as well. Like it's, uh, from, my, from my experience, the most difficult thing you can do is try to balance two things that seem simple on the surface, but achieving the balance between them that for me
2: is, is super challenging. Like, is it, do you, do you feel the same? Oh yeah. And I can be terrible about this because I love ridiculous things. I've really dry <laughs> and absurd sense of humor. So whenever I, I, I love to do actually really ridiculous, absurd stories and um, they don't always get very high marks. <laughs> <played> that way.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Would that be like your, your biggest challenge? We like to ask our guests, like what is the biggest challenge that you faced and how did you, work around it so maybe you can answer the question as well i tried to segue it.
2: <laughs> yeah it's playing my own game and getting good at it yeah yeah <laughs> uh, it is I, you know it's been really helpful though especially if someone has to communicate all the time because uh like having having to break down a complex idea of the future with different characters into a bite-sized story that makes sense and is also creative and a bit fun It is a big challenge and you start to understand the parameters of that, the more you get to play with it and you start to understand why some people are really good at it. Um, So yeah, I, I still find it challenging. I am trying to design a new version of peak that actually lets you be a bit more ridiculous and into the future and still keep some mechanic to it. But that's a whole other, whole other ball of wax. It is, it is quite a challenge. Yeah. Sounds like it.
1: So Apart from your own game, I mean, I I know I've played Peak, and and it's a a great experience and a really great game and I'd really recommend it to people. But apart from your own games, which obviously have a special place in your heart, what what other games do you like the most and why?
2: Well, first, thank you. (laughs) Appreciate that. Glad you enjoyed it. Um, Yeah, so I've been playing games for ages, especially in high school. Um, My friend, I had a friend, Scott. And his, for some reason, he was always getting new games. So I'd go and play games at his house. And he had every board game. And I think he had Settlers of Catan. I think it goes back to when I was in high school. I'm pretty sure it goes back that far, if I remember right. He had the first version of that. Um, and we had the whole gamut of, you know, map-based games, world-based games, commerce-based games, shoots and ladders, which isn't even really a game, as you know. <laughs> Just random chance. <laughs> um, but we played a lot of D&D and, uh, you know, Dungeons and Dragons. And I, I'll admit, I, I sat there and went through the games. I never quite got into it. I can never take it seriously enough, especially because we had some absurd friends who would insist on having names like Elf and Rod and taking part in medieval battle enactments, um, which I appreciated, but also found, you know, a little bit silly sometimes. I really, I, I really uh, I'm really, i jealous of people who can immerse themselves in that fantasy world and really mean it. I don't know. I've always been a bit critical of that, unfortunately. Uh, but I love, I love the format, and I love making up games with stories and trying to figure out how to make them click quicker and make shorter games and longer games. Um, so, yeah, I think that's where a lot of things come from. Uh, Cards Against Humanity. Also, Massive Game showed me that it can be a big commercial game. Cards were a good format for that. Uh, and then the group, I really like the group CMYK, uh, CMYK Games. I don't know if you know them. Um, who's in yes. that? With, uh, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's it, it registered Nika. in my memory, yes. <laughs> yeah. My saying's name is Alex, uh, no, Alex Haig. Sorry, not Alex Ha. Alex Haw's is another friend of mine. Alex Haig, I think Casey Pugh, Kristen Leach, I wrote them down. Um, I love their games. Wavelength uh, is really fun. Uh, pitch Deck
1: the is mind. amazing.
2: The Mind. <laughs> I played Pitch Deck with my students, and even though it's a bit risque, they absolutely loved it. And I think it really helped them understand how ridiculous startups are sometimes, <laughs> right? Yes. <laughs> but also how to pitch them, right? How to come up with ideas on the fly, which kids are not always very good at.
0: Yeah, I'm, I'm, well, first of all, big Dungeons & Dragons fan here as well. and <laughs> I also echo your experience because, like, for me, it's when I want to think deeply and elaborately, I do the Dungeon Master, I don't play. But when I play, I want, I want ridiculousness. So I usually play a barbarian that acts, like, in the worst possible way just to create laughs. And if possible, to also, you know, <laughs> beat the occasional enemy, but mostly producing <laughs> amped uh, opportunities for laughs. Uh, I like it you, you mentioned, you uh, started mentioning some some other game designers as well. So I want to basically expand on that. Like, what game designers do you admire the most and you think would be uh, nice potential guests for, for this podcast?
2: Well, yeah, I like the CMYK group. Um... I was thinking of other game designers, like actual people who I follow quite a bit. Um, I, I I don't know. I, they're the ones I've been following the most these days. And I bought some of their games. They make kids' games too. I bought some from my, my cousins and my, uh, my nephews. And uh, I'm always buying games that are sometimes not even age appropriate they're a little bit ahead (laughs) there's that game camel run i think that came out which um i'm not sure who did that which is which i thought was probably interesting but turned out to be way too complicated for my nephew (laughs) he was eight i thought he's a smart kid he can do math he can do a betting game based on you know loosely on ancient egypt sure why not (laughs) um i think it's based on egypt i'm not sure I saw there's camels and deserts and pyramids in some way. Uh,
1: I played, I played camel runner, uh, Zatuz. Oh yeah. Sorry. I think the artwork sometimes leads you a bit astray. There are several games that look like they might be kids games, but that's because somebody's, uh, sort of adopted that sort of cartoony kind of artwork. And then when you get there, it's like, this is way too complex for a kid.
2: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And the artwork's important. I really, I, you know, used to be into comics, uh, I guess I still into comics, I should say. Uh, uh, so I love I love good artwork. And that's why at Peak, I got um, my friend Palak Selenus, who's an amazing illustrator. And I was like, we have to sit down and you have to illustrate this game. It's not going to be just like something, you know. And I've tried using AI on some of it just for fun to see what that looked like. But, you know, there's no, just no substitute for a really good illustrator.
0: Mm.
1: And the artwork, the artwork is really lovely.
0: Yeah, yeah. The human touch makes a huge difference.
2: Yeah. And could I give a shout-out to my friend, Matteo Menapace, uh, who's, uh, sorry, Menapace, I should say, properly in Italian. Uh, and he's yes. um, yeah another <laughs> game designer. Uh, Matteo's been great. We've been, I've known him for ages, and he's, he's the one who really showed me that game design is possible uh, because he makes all sorts of little games that are self-published. Um, he's got a lovely one about memory where you put down cards that are your memories and you speak about them, and then they fade away over time. And it's sort of just about, you know, loss, life, memory, experience, uh, really interesting ways of rethinking what game mechanics could be. And he's got a blockbuster game coming out called Daybreak, which is uh, just about to ship.
0: Yeah, yeah. When we started this podcast, I I mentioned Mateo as a potential guest to Sarah because we interviewed each other, basically talking about potential guests. And I I mentioned Mateo myself because I I was one of the beta testers of Daybreak and I I loved it. And it was also very similar to a game that I, I Co-authored like recently at the time, <laughs> so yeah, one hundred percent. We should invite Matteo as one of
2: our next guests. Yeah, especially all the climate talk going on. I mean, it. Uh, I learned so much about climate from that game. I mean, it's such a geeky game in many ways. It's so complex, but like once you get into it, it's deep. It's quite enthralling. Yeah, we, uh, which makes me
0: um think of a follow-up question because the topic of uh, this month is speculation. So. Yeah, spec- I drove to it from, from climate change. <laughs> uh, but uh, I, I want to basically ask you a very general question. How do you employ speculation into your games? Or how do you think speculation can be an important uh, part of how a game is structured?
2: Mm. Yeah, I, I love speculation as a technique. I mean, I taught at the RCA for a while uh, and really got to the idea of speculative design um, I really enjoyed the book Speculative Everything from, uh, Tony Dunn and Fiona Robbie. Um, they taught at the RCA before I was there. They helped find the design interactions degree, which I think really did a lot for pushing speculative design into the world. And they have just some great projects that are like, they have a series of different globes. Oh, I can't, I shouldn't say globes, but models of the earth that are in different geometric shapes that make you think of science fiction. Like what if the earth was a Taurus? What if it was like two you know, pyramids on top of each other. Uh, what would life be like if you looked up into the sky and you saw a separate pyramid on top of you and you could walk between them? Just to me, like, just that open-ended speculation is great. And it and it showed me that, you know, you don't need a lot to speculate. I mean, the original idea for Peak was I was going to give people proper stories to read and then remix. And by the end of it, we had to fit them on a card because, A, I decided it's really hard to make an actual you know, product of a game, (laughs) right? It's really expensive and you have manufacturing. So why not just fit on a card? But then once you fit on the card, you have to make it bite-sized. And, you know, if you do it right, you know, they're like little poems that help you speculate. Like poems are speculative, right? I mean, they're just words that bounce you off into a future, into future thought. That's what they're designed for. So I think speculations, it's just so important. You know, we if we lose our collective memory too, then like, what do we have? If we can't imagine... A solution, you know, or another world around capitalism or climate change, as the uh, as the sayings go. Then, then what do we have?
0: Yeah, yeah. The, I think the the what if question is fundamental to speculation. But what I find challenging when it comes to employing it as a technique in in a game or any other thing for that matter is having a a system or a point of reference to to bounce off of mm. in order to basically make something playable yeah. <laughs> out of it to, to give uh, you know building blocks that people can use to create their own uh whatever it is that they're creating based on whether it's a game or whether it's a whatever type of game yeah so what what do you think about that like how is there is there an easy way to to come up with uh, a system upon which speculation can function as a playable technique oh god no
2: no. <laughs> <laughs> I think you hit the nail on the head. And, uh, and when we were running speculative design workshops at the RCA, that was, that was the big problem, was that to build up the world, which it, the common world, and like you said, the framework you need, to, the scaffolding to speculate, takes like days. And to do it on peak, I mean, it took me like two years, really, to write all the themes into peak to make sure the characters work to one another, that they cover enough ground to build in the timeline. So if you play peak, you know, you're telling stories within a timeline, which is the real grounding factor. Right. And without that, you'd be lost. Like you need to know where maybe in the future you are relative to other stories and where relative to other characters you are in order to triangulate where your story is. Otherwise, you know, if you if it's too open, then you're just making up a story cold on the spot. And that's, that's terrifying. And really hard. Um, so that's why in newer versions now, I'm, I'm playing even more with the idea of timelines and alternate realities and uh, trying to come up with some other techniques of not quite time travel, but the idea of, you know, future future gazing. So speculation, you know, as a, as a method for changing the world, but then also like speculations as a battle technique to like, you know, if you can create different speculative worlds that then crowd out other speculative worlds you know, I get kind of like what Donald Trump does, I think. I think he's actually really good at speculation, you know, (laughs) right? (laughs) Creating a fiction that crowds out all of other fictions and realities to his own, uh, to his own benefit, sociopathic benefit.
0: With with questionable frameworks to to utilize for it. But yeah, (laughs) absolutely.
2: I mean, you know, but don't they say he's like, He's like a poor man's idea of what a rich man should look like. You know, have you heard that? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think he is like, he is a work of speculative fiction. Like he's not, there's nothing in reality that's Donald Trump. And I mean, it's quite amazing in some way, you know, and I I think that's, there's something said about that for a technique that like, you know, we can use that technique as well. It doesn't have to be just used by people who want to do everything for personal gain and to burn the world down
1: it's um it, it's mm. interesting the whole idea of sort of speculative fiction and speculation is it's it's fundamentally it's very very simple um because it is literally just asking that mm. what if question um and you can start off very simply but there is such emergent complexity that comes out of it and i think it's quite interesting w- what you've raised there because obviously there is emergent complexity that comes out of just asking that question I and mean, we were talking about um different shaped uh different shaped earths and I mean certainly, two of my favorite authors and two of the sort of greatest kind of works of speculative fiction have come out of that simple idea um you know there's the disc world what would happen if the disc if the world were a disc and it sat on top of you know on the back of a tortoise a giant turtle and and what would ha- and you know obviously that's Terry Pratchett and then disc um ring world, so Larry Niven is also one of my favorite authors, and that you know what would happen if we had an artificially created earth that was a, that was a giant ring. Um, but there is also, which is something that isn't talked about quite so much, is the, there is the emergent complexity in the implementation side of that, which is what you're talking about with the game. It's, it's very simple to ask that what-if question, but you need to have more than that if you're going to have a framework in which people can do speculation
2: really well. Yeah, yeah. Speculation is as good as the universe that it sits in. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
1: It's all, it's, <laughs> <Right>? it's all <laughs> yeah, exactly. bottom-up world-building, isn't it, really?
2: hmm Yeah. And, the, you know, there's people who are great at peak. The people who are best at peak, there's, there's a mix, but I did it once with people who worked in the theatre and they were, like, screenwriters and they just immediately made up the most amazing stories. They just got it right away. Um, although, to be fair, no one who's played the game has ever failed to make a story despite thinking that they were going to fail to make a story (laughs) or being very quiet. So I think there's something very human about just being able to speculate once you get that space to do it.
1: Mm. It's very innate within us, isn't it? Storytelling and responding to story. Uh, Even though some of us have had that kind of drilled out of us. (laughs) Mm. It's still all there.
2: Yeah, completely. But, you know, uh, on the topic of stories too and, and universes and grounding... Um, One of the reasons I sort of stopped doing Peak, because I thought about doing another version with the stories, but I thought, you know, I've told a lot of my story, like I've tried to be diverse about it. I've talked to people. Um, I got my wife to write some because uh, she's a minority and she writes from a different standpoint as well. So she's got a different experience. She's British. I'm American originally, although American and British now these days. Um, But it was still very like Western British Anglo centered narrative in many ways. Like, I, I, I'd love to extend it out even more. And I don't think you can do that without actually getting other people involved and other people writing and creating that world. And, you know, for me, that, that was a whole big process that hopefully I'm going to get to do at some point. But, you know, if you're talking about code design, you know, speaking of design and design methods, you know, I, I didn't want to do a game that just paid lip service to that Because I've seen too many games that say, this is an all-encompassing, you know, ideation technique, whatever. And you're like, no, but that's just from you. And you live in Los Angeles and you write stories for screen. You know, there's something much deeper and much weirder and much more interesting and diverse about collaborations where you really put yourself out of your comfort zone. So hopefully that will be in a future version or... Maybe somebody else will decide to do their own version of it. Who knows?
1: Yeah, that brings to mind a, a game that I played. Oh, it's, it's, a, it's a while back now. I think it's called Afro Rhythms. Have you come across that? No. No, that's a, it. It's kind of like Peak in many ways, except it's done from a sort of Afrofuturism perspective. It's a really, really interesting game and some gorgeous, gorgeous artwork in it as well. I definitely recommend uh, people take a look at that one.
2: I'd love to see that. I love the whole afrofuturist movement yeah. um it's such an It's such an interesting idea and uh it's got such a really clear i think like strong aesthetic to it you know what i mean there's a lot of really good imagery around it mm. you know maybe not always stories but like just really clear images and ideas and some interesting concepts and um yeah i'd love to, I'd love to get that into a game, but I don't think I, I couldn't self-publish it, you know. I'd have to have a proper collaborator for that. Yeah. I never, <laughs> never try and just do that. I'd be like, here's my white dude version of like, yeah, African exactly. You know what exactly. I mean? But that would <laughs> completely be completely inappropriate. Not Af- Afro- <laughs> 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 yeah, yeah. Well, this this brings to mind
0: the Wagadu Chronicles, which is um, uh, it's it's an, uh, based on African mythology. It's an MMORPG, and it's based on African mythology. It's uh, obviously created by People intrinsically familiar with African mythology. It's still under construction, I think, and the lore, the lore book that they created, is compatible with D and D five e, Dungeons and Dragons five uh, e. But uh, they're building their own um, kind of system around it as well. So that's yeah. So it's it's another interesting thing to to look
2: at and uh, potentially a future guest in our podcast. Yeah, definitely. I mean. I know I've, i played peak in China. I do a lot of teaching in China and I took it to Beijing and I played it with art teachers and students out there and, um, and they got to it really well. And I, I love Chinese science fiction as well. Like three body problem. Um, I think there's some really interesting, I mean, you know, Chinese literature is, is insanely big, you know, and it's quite a storytelling literate culture. So, uh, I think there's tons of opportunities out there and I'd love to see more game designers and storytellers coming from there as well. Absolutely.
1: Yeah, I've just, I've just checked. The game's actually called Afro rhythms from the Future.
2: Oh, I have seen that game.
1: Yeah, no, I do. I did look at
2: that. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah, really interesting game. And, and as, from what I remember, you, you as a group, you build, or as an individual within the group, you build an artefact. A future artifact and then you share it with the group which is a really really interesting concept yeah i would have
2: loved to have played that i did i remember looking it up um i don't think they've they played it many times have they that's one of those games that's hard to find <laughs> or is it that, no no you can buy it for 20 dollars <laughs> you? Okay. oh okay maybe yes. something else all right there we go i might have to pick one up
1: so, um, obviously, this, this podcast is aimed at people who are, are either involved in, in games-based learning and, and games design or or looking to start out. Um, and the latter half, we tend to sort of focus on, on that uh, second group of people. So, what piece of advice would you give to someone who's starting out in games design? I would say,
2: don't expect to make much money. <laughs> <laughs> expect to lose money. Um, but I think you have to decide why you want to get into games design, really. I mean, I do it because I think it's fun. Um, I, I sell my own games and I'm independent. And I've talked to quite a few people about how to make money off it or how to go to next level and publish it. And, um, and I've realized that, you know, that, that's where it really becomes a business. And for me, I think it's like an interesting artistic project. Like, so I come at this as an artist rather than as someone who's going to be making any kind of commercial or commerce out of it. And, you know, if you self-publish online, you know, you can get cards done quite easily. Uh, You know, one of my mistakes at the beginning was thinking I was going to actually go and develop a game, a physical game and make it because that, that takes tooling. You have to look at factories, you have to do production runs and all that is absolutely possible, but requires a very different business plan. And you have to be really clear I mean, you could see what's happening with Daybreak. You know, I know Matteo and the gang want their game to be perfect. And they've had a back and forth with their manufacturer for like months, if not a year, to get the card trays right, to get the fiddly little bits of design right, so all the little pegs fit in the right holes, to get the board manufactured. You know, it's proper industrial engineering is what it is. But with cards, like man, cards are so easy to make. And you could fold them in weird ways. I got them perforated on the sides. You could fold some in half. There's, there's lots of fun things you could do with paper and cards. And if you're into just getting your ideas out and you know you want to like play around with ideas, um, card games are great. Otherwise, homemade boards are great. Um, I, I don't know. It's, otherwise, it's quite tough, isn't it? I mean, trying to find a publisher, trying to trying to make the connections in order to make a living off it. I know some people do it on Kickstarter, but um, it really requires polish and skill um, and a huge amount of dedication and a bit of luck and And making things that a commercial, right? I mean, if you want to be a commercial game designer, like, don't pick weird storytelling topics like I do that are clearly in, you know, my... <laughs> Like, I'm I'm big with, like, anthropologists and designers and artists and, you know, and other game designers, which is, like, that's cool. I'm happy in that space. Uh, but if you want to make something fun, I mean, games about dogs and cats are, you know, can't go wrong with that, right?
1: <laughs> Everybody owns a dog since the pandemic, yeah. as far well as
2: I can see. <laughs> <laughs> totally.
1: Apart from me. Or a cat.
0: Like our frequent guest in this podcast.
1: <laughs> Who's very quiet at the moment. I hope you're appreciating that.
0: I, I am, very much. <laughs> So Evan, um, the, the final thing we usually ask, and it makes sense for the nature of the podcast is, uh, what is something that you've learned from your game design, uh, adventure and endeavors that can
2: be applied outside of games in, in real life, so sort to of speak. And I've learned a ton from playing this game. Um, I mean, I've learned a lot about, again, how to tell stories, um, which is really helpful. I mean, my job as a lecturer and as someone who writes courses and degrees is to communicate. So I've learned a lot about what makes good communication in a short amount of time. Uh, I've learned learned to make things fun, you know, which is something we forget. I mean, I'm always constantly reminding myself to make life fun, that things could be a lot worse, (laughs) you know. Like what I do is... it should always have a measure of fun inside it. Um, graphic design skills. I don't know. I don't know if there's anything else outside of that. I think that's pretty good for things to learn. Very practical.
1: <laughs> so if people want to find out more about Evan and more about Peak and about the other work that you've done, where, where can they go to do that?
2: Uh, I'm kind of terrible about putting my stuff out there. Um, I have. If you Google my name... Uh, I'm the only Evan Raskob that exists, and you will come up with various university research <laughs> pages. <laughs> so I'm easy, to, I'm easy to find through that. Uh, you can find about at Peak at store.thepeakgame.com, which has a brief explanation of it and some videos, and I think some deeper links into some of the papers and things that Peak has been published in. And um, as far as my art and things like that, um, I do have a website that's quite old and needs to be updated called pixlist.info because I used to be a visual performer. So pixelist was the the title I gave myself because a new media artist practitioner just didn't have that ring, you know?
1: Are there any other sort of games design projects on the horizon for you?
2: Well, I I mean, right now I'm writing this course, which is, you know, got a lot of, I think, play inside it. Maybe not so much games, but definitely play. I, I, do lessons. One of my nice things is uh, converting Peak into a format of ideation for the students. So when we get to final projects, I like to do this game called um, called Picture Project, where you have to come up with like uh, some sort of creative reference, a context for it, and then a technique or technology. And uh, that works out really well for our, our digital art students. So they might pick an artist, like a gallery or place to show the art, and then some kind of technique like microcontrollers or sensing or apps or you know machine learning or something like that and they have to pitch their projects based on that so i'm constantly constantly redoing this thing but i would love at some point to get enough time to really spend time on uh, on peak three and think about a sort of time travel timeline based uh game which the Marvel Universe has done lots of timelines battling, and I know the new Loki is coming out, which I'm a bit excited about, probably too excited about. But, um, you know, when that came out, I was like, oh, man, yeah, they're, they're kind of on my idea, this idea of battling timelines. Um, I think there's something really interesting about the idea of not only one speculative reality, but battles between speculative reality and deciding game mechanics of how you choose between those.
1: I'm afraid my relationship with the Marvel Universe is somewhat soured because um, I don't uh, sort of have any subscription TV things and you sort of get to the cinema to watch the latest whatever and half of the stuff you don't understand because it's been done in a TV show on, on Disney and it's just like, this is not fair. They're taking Marvel away from me.
2: Yeah. Yeah, the newest one with Sam Jackson, uh, I couldn't watch it. I started it and I'm like, I don't understand. There's too much backstory. I don't. Yeah, he does have a lot
0: of requirements, it's true.
2: <laughs> backstory that you have to pay for outside of going to
1: the cinema.
0: Or that you have to have invested the time in the past 15 years or so.
1: <laughs> well, yeah, that's the other thing. It's like so many sort of uh, TV shows and then spin-offs of TV shows that you have to watch to like keep up with it all, yeah.
2: Or just go back to the comics, you know. I got I got a subscription accidentally to it.
1: Yeah, that's that's what I tend to do. That's what I tend to do.
0: That's the geek in me speaking. But uh, <laughs> like, I like the Marvel Cinematic Universe better than the comics. I find they added depth <laughs> to the characters and they made uh, much better. You know, uh, the elements of how the different universes come together are in most cases more well done than in the comics of course with some failures in between uh, but when it comes to the comics DC is far the superior podcast. like it has much much uh, complex backgrounds for the characters has much better character arcs much better way to, to deal with storytelling than Marvel Marvel is very superficial in the comics but somehow in the in the movies basically they managed to do the exact opposite <laughs> They completely destroyed the DC universe by making it overly superficial, <laughs> and they elevated somehow the Marvel universe because they added some some oomph to the characters.
1: <laughs> by and large, I would agree, but I'd have to say that Thor: The Dark World has got to be one of the worst movies ever made.
0: Oh yeah, 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 yeah! Absolutely, there there are some massive failures there. The last Thor, oh, it, oh. it, was, it was painful. It was painful
2: to watch. <laughs> <laughs> well, worse than Thor Two. Thor Two is pretty bad.
1: Which one was? Which one was Thor Two? That was the Dark World, wasn't it? Was that
2: the Dark World one? They all kind of f- they fuzz together in my head. Yeah. No, you're right. Then. Yeah. It's better not to remember. Anyway, we're digressing somewhat. We we could come back to speculative design if you want, because uh, <laughs> coming back from Marvel, remember uh, the Falcon and the Winter Soldier? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Right, that terrible show. I mean, it wasn't terrible, but it wasn't great either. Um, yeah. <laughs> but you know, we have this thing in speculative design, which is the future mundane, which is what's just going to be like, if you're in mm-hmm. a ridiculous situation, like you're a superhero, let's say you need a bank loan for your boat, <laughs> right? Like Falcon's trying to do there. That to me was the most interesting part of that storyline is like, he goes in as a superhero, but he's trying to get a bank loan for his boat. And I'm like, and I watched a few episodes of my friends and we're like, wait, is he going to get the bank loan? Like what? Forget the other stuff. Yeah. Who cares about the super soldier serum? But like, how's he going to get that bank loan? They're clearly being like a bit racist towards him, aren't they? Like, what's he going to do? You know, I think, um, (laughs) what looks less likely.
1: Yeah. A a movie, a movie that did that really well. The kind of the, the mundanity of like running, a a supervillain kind of business is Despicable Me. Oh, yeah, that, that was good. I think that did that really, oh, really yeah. well. I mean, yeah. yeah. It's sort of like, yeah, yeah, I'm, you know, I'm going to steal the moon and the pyramids and stuff like this, but there's all this other kind of administration that I have to deal with, like you're dealing with this, this R&D guy who's a bit deaf and, like, running the minions hmm. and, you know, getting a bank loan.
0: <laughs> I mean, if you take it that way, then how about the boys? <laughs> yeah (laughs) i'm super excited about the the upcoming season like i really love the show
2: (laughs) it's so much better in the comic i mean the comic was like interesting but man the show is like yeah yeah. but yeah again i think you know different different forms of media right it shows how there's different you know there's different ways of of storytelling different media and i mean i think games can also take advantage of that i mean i'm surprised there's not more like hybrid games although i guess it's difficult with the tech isn't it yeah absolutely you know like to do a video, you know, and then a card at the same time and then augmented reality. Like, I'm really interested in what's going to happen with these Apple handsets now and the headsets, you know? Like, what, what sort of games can come out of that finally? Because we seem to have failed to do augmented reality games up until now in, in any decent way.
1: I, I kind of feel that sometimes the tech gets in the way mm-hmm. and, and actually sort of analog... I mean, I might be a bit biased. I probably am a bit biased because I, I favor tabletop games and board games and so on over over video games. Um, but sometimes it feels like all of that gets in the way and it becomes the point of the thing rather than something that facilitates it. Um, And, Mm. you know, that analogue experience of, of, of getting together and telling a story... There's very little that gets in the way. A card doesn't really ever get in the way. That The, the technology of a card is so simple and so universally understood that it's never going to get into in the way of the thing that you're actually trying to do, which is tell great stories.
0: Yeah. Well, I, I see that. I, I see the same, the same kind of uh, danger in, in cinema, <laughs> where basically you're you end up putting more effort into the special effects and uh, cinematography and you forget the storytelling part. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Oh, yeah. I think it's the same or similar danger.
1: But I I, I guess the other thing is games are, games are by their very nature, they're participatory in a way that going to see a film or watching a TV show, you're you're a consumer. And it'd be interesting to see how that could change with the use of technology. I mean, I, I guess Bandersnatch was a... A sort of a a stab at that um I I got much more excited about that happening than I was when I actually experienced it because it was it was a little bit mundane when it came down but you know it's just a starting point I suppose
2: yeah and it's like the tech is there but it has to be appropriate and I mean Bender Snatch was also it would have taken a long time to watch through it all it did and (laughs) I think. Did you actually do it?
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, wow. I live in Charlie Brooker's hometown, so I feel a certain responsibility to sort of Charlie Brooker and, and Black Mirror in generally.
2: <laughs> You've got to represent, yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely.
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I think there's, um, and this is something I hit with Peak as well, is, is that like there are games that you sit down and you expect to play for a very long amount of time right? Like Dungeon Dragons, you strap in, you're going to be there for like six hours, people clear their day. You know, there's like the game pandemic, well no, not the game pandemic, but um, what is it? I have friends who play games, right? And they literally take a whole day and it's like a holiday and they order pizza and it's like a big, it's a big event, right? You make a space for that game. And then there's oh, I'm home and I've just been working all day and staring at the screen, like maybe I'll play a card game and my wife and my friend or my partner and my family, I need something quick, you know. Or maybe I'm watching TV and, like, I'm not so into the TV. I want it to be background, so I want to have something to go along with that as a companion. Or I'm at a party. You know, there's all these different contexts. And I think the games that are good, you know, speaking of advice to give people to starting out in game design, make sure your game is context appropriate, right? (laughs) You know, everyone wants an all-consuming game that everyone's going to love and play. But you're like, yeah, when am I going to play this, like, 14-hour, like, grand opus space opera you know where it requires three phones and an audio device and like a projector you know when am i how am i going to clear that space i have to light candles i don't know like what how is this going to work so tech tech needs that i mean we haven't found a space for tech yet except invade our brains and make our lives you know turn us into like twitching, angry zombies basically i mean like you know we really need a better relationship with tech first and one that's more appropriate and bounded maybe
1: so we've been talking a lot about uh, tech and I, and I guess the, the sort of speculation about where tech will go, particularly in the times we're living in now, we're living, as I said earlier, in very interesting times. Things seem to be moving very, very quickly. Um, I guess um, Peak allows you to tell those kind of speculative technology stories. So could you give us an example of, of how that works or one of those that you've told
2: before? Yeah, I think, you know, embedded in Peak are these reports from the future, these special cards that are mini stories that I wrote, which arguably are the content of Why You Buy Peak because it's like a science fiction novel in itself from like in a fractured point of view. Um, and I think kind of deep in that, and maybe this answers your question, maybe it's a bit of a tangent, um, but, uh, but deep, embedded deep in that is the kind of question of how much will technology actually change the world, right? I mean, clearly technology Changes the world in a physical way, like it changes resources, it changes the human footprint, but it never really changes people. And the question of the game, when you're telling stories about people in the future, is always, you know, how much, how much will we empathize with them? How much we recognize ourselves in those people? And the reason peak isn't set like 2,000 or 4,000 years in the future is because people may be unrecognizable by then, and we may not. They may not even be people anymore you know, when you, when you start to think ahead that far. Um, so it's set in the near future. But, you know, to kind of maybe leave with an idea of, of speculative design, uh, you know, there's a question of when does our speculative imagination run out, right? When when do we hit the boundary of what we can speculate as people and then suddenly we're contemplating, you know, smart rocks, you know, it's like other creatures, other consciousnesses, distributed consciousnesses, time that exists on universal or galactic scale, you know, things that were really hard to bring into human scale and that we may never understand. So that, that to me is interesting and maybe something to explore in future ones, you know, those boundaries and peak, peak stops well short of that though. And I think that's a real, that's a real choice that maybe other people could try to explore as well as to where, where those boundaries are and how much things are actually going to change in the future.
1: If you look back at sort of like the history of speculative fiction, um, it seems that there are there is a there is a general imagination sort of a limit of what people generally can can imagine, and then there are these standout people who can imagine so much more, so you know the, the likes of sort of Jules Verne, h. G. Wells, and so on who clearly had a a much more developed speculative imagination and could look for uh, further a bit forward and more forward than everybody else and It'd be interesting to try and recognize who those people are now. I suspect in Mieville, maybe, is one of them. Um, Mm -hmm. But, yeah, but you probably wouldn't realise who they were if you were living in the same time as them. You'd only realise with hindsight.
2: Yeah, and there's the question, you know, yeah, were they just time-shifted? Yeah. (laughs) Right? Yeah. You know, they are distributed unevenly in the past.
1: (laughs) Yes, exactly. (laughs) Thank you very much for joining us today, Evan. Um, an absolutely fascinating conversation. It's always um, a pleasure to talk to you and to, to speculate about uh, the things that are to come.
0: Thank you from my side as well, Evan. It has been wonderful talking to you. And this has been the Ludogogi Podcast. Game, Game over. over.